Hello, my friends. Today, we are talking to Peter High, the president of Metis Strategy, and we discuss the importance of building a network of people and finding interesting ways to connect with them, common traits that stick out amongst great leaders, and benefits you can gain from writing to articulate your thoughts. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey, Peter. Morning, Joel. How are you? Fantastic. There you are. Hey. What's up, buddy? There I am. <laughs> you having a good day? Yeah, things are well. Thank you. How about with you? Oh, yeah. Today's a great day. I got back from Chicago this week, and I'm very happy I'm back in Florida and it's warm. So one of the things I was most interested with you is the book that you've written. Like, you've written a couple books, but what's the title of the most recent one? Uh, it's implementing world-class IT strategy. And uh, the idea behind it is really kind of a, a methodology for strategic planning. Um, and so we, we work a lot with chief information officers, chief digital officers, chief technology officers. And historically, anyway, though this is certainly changing, uh, these have been, and I need to be careful, of course, because there's each of those roles come in so many different flavors. But um, the technology functions, let's say historically anyway, have often been very tactical organizations and have been later adopters of, of, of sound strategic planning processes. And so this book, um, the, my most recent book, has been <clears throat> has provided a method for technology leaders to use in order to develop better strategic plans, ensure that those plans are helping drive the broader enterprise towards value and innovation, and um, is an area in which I've spent an awful lot of time in terms of advising those very same executives. Oh, that's really cool. I was actually just talking about that yesterday with the uh, CTO of Deloitte, because they do he does oh. some higher level strategy stuff. But in, you have a book, and in, in this book, you actually give like a framework, like a methodology, a way to think about it. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I think it's, it's important, you know, whether, whether one uses, you know, my methodology or another, I think it's important to have a framework. Um, the, the, the issue really is making sure that you have kind of an apples to apples comparison across plans or even across objectives uh, for your organization. And so the way in which we think about it is, first and foremost, developing those set of objectives um, and minimizing them. I, I Usually the issue is having too many as opposed to too few. So the kind of rule of thumb we typically think of is four to six. So there certainly may be cases for um, uh, you know, something outside of that band, but, but <clears throat> generally speaking, a good place to begin. And then having success metrics associated with each of those. So how do you know that you've, you've reached your destination or how far along on that path are you? So having the metrics to help you determine that. Then a variety of levers or actions that you take. Very importantly, though, Joel, that these are not projects. These are um, divorced of project language because projects, of course, should be interchangeable, cancelable, these sorts of things. <clears throat> By having those in the um, plans themselves, it renders them more important than they actually should be. Um, and then success metrics associated with those tactics or actions that I've just referred to. And it's only after the development of those that you take the investments and in projects or product areas and begin to align them or, or determine that there is a lack of alignment um, against that plan to determine as, as really the first filter of the prioritization process for the initiatives that you might pursue. So clearly you're brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Oh. You're you like super <laughs> sharp and knowledgeable. Like, you know, talking to all of these leaders, and I know you talk to a lot of people as well, but you could pick up on people really early in the conversation and 
just your immediate like depth of knowledge tactically is is awesome because I get a lot of questions about strategy and so now I think I have a book to refer. I'm going to check it out for sure. <laughs> well, but <laughs> very yeah. kind, very kind. I appreciate that, Joel. Thank you. Okay, so you've got all this knowledge. You've got this book. You've you have a very popular podcast where you interview great uh, technology and innovative people in, in the Fortune 500 space and beyond. But like, give me the origin story. How did you fall in love with technology? I mean, video games, like what was it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, so I kind of stumbled upon it. I was a history major and an economics major as an undergrad. So more traditional business background, at least on the econ side. I did a lot of the uh, undergraduate business program at my university as well and <clears throat> went into consulting. And as it happened, I worked for a firm that was focused on innovation. Um, and it was there that I really got my first major exposure to technology. I was, so I was not kind of a programmer growing up. I was not much of a gamer. And so you wouldn't have necessarily pegged me for this field if you, if you met me as a teenager or as a very young adult. Um, but, you know, it's very fortuitous. So I, I, my career started in the mid-90s. And where, when technology was really on the rise, uh, you know, I, my, 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 my first job came a year after the Netscape IPO, which some people use as oh, the cool. sort of, you know, the, the starting of the, the re really kind of the, 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 the true kickoff of the Internet age. And, um, and so technology was on the ascent. And as a result, I was very fortunate to be in a place where we were spending a lot of time with technology leaders and helping them develop kind of innovation processes and literally formulating some of those very innovations. And, and just a, a moment longer on this point, I, I also had the great good fortune of um, having my first exposure to CIOs. I didn't know how to spell CIO when I got out of college, but I, um, I had a chance to uh, really work with some very progressive chief information officers. Again, now think back to the 1990s when it was almost definitively a, a support organization, not viewed as strategic, rarely uh, reporting into the CEO, almost exclusively the CFO, or at least most often anyway. And um, I, had, I had this great uh, privilege to work with some CIOs who were really forward thinking and seeing the power of this perch, the strategic perch they had within the organization as uh, having the ability to help shape the strategic plans across the organization. And a, 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 an example I often like to give, Joel, is um, the, if you think of the average chief marketing officer, uh, his or her purview is outside of the organization on the existing and potential customers of the company. The average human resources officer, their purview, their, their uh, vector points inside the organization towards the employees of the organization. So they're, they're in opposite directions as a result of that. Now, in great companies, hopefully those two executives understand the makeup of each other's plans, but it's not likely that they can go into the footnotes of each other's plans. The IT leader, by contrast, uh, needs to breathe life into both those plans and everyone in between. And so for those really progressive leaders uh, in the mid-90s and, of course, now through to today, they recognize that this is actually an extraordinarily strategic position. It's actually a, a, a perch where you can identify needs and opportunities that span multiple parts of the organization, perhaps the entire enterprise, before the executives that run those different functions as different business units might recognize the breadth of that opportunity themselves. And so I had this great fortune of working with and collaborating with a number of CIOs who really got that in the early stages. And so for me, that really, uh, from then on, I worked for another firm, kind of a McKinsey spinoff, uh, working almost exclusively with CIOs. And then 18 years ago, founded my business with uh, kind of pinpointing the technology and digitally, digital executives as, as, our, as our clients. 
And that's an exciting business too, because you're always getting to learn new businesses, new industry challenges. Um, what's on your radar right now? Like, is is AI a big thing? Is VR a big like? Where what's the big conversation in your world right now? Yeah, you know it's funny. So we're, we're preparing right now for a big summit uh, in Dallas, Texas next next month, and we've been polling the 50 or so. 50, 60 global CIOs will be joining us on topics of interest. And so I've got some, you know, sort of recent data on this very point, Joel. And artificial intelligence continues to rise to the top. Um, it's, it's very interesting just how, how powerful and not, and not necessarily so surprising, mind you. And it's at all sorts of different levels. There are those who, you know, dip their toe in the water. There are those who are already, you know, swimming the butterfly. Uh, and, and everything in between in terms of their sophistication and, and use of and implementation of artificial intelligence. You know, that one, of, one of the interesting uh, challenges of this is it really takes a village in order to do this well. Uh, in order to develop internally great artificial intelligence or data analytics, uh, algorithm-based you know, talent, it's very expensive and those resources can be very hard to find. If yours is a business that's in a, in a city within the U.S., for example, that doesn't have a great you know, preponderance of technology talent, it could be almost impossible. And so it means developing an ecosystem around you. And so I think that's part of the challenge here is how do you, how do you really approach this opportunity and seize all the value from it um, with, you know, it, as creatively as you can, cobbling together an ecosystem to drive this forward. Um, but I think, you know, most of the chief information officers, chief technology officers, and chief digital officers that I speak with AI continues to be a significant priority for them and an area of deep curiosity. Um, you mentioned VR. I think VR certainly has a lot of implications. I think it's probably AR. As we talk about the enterprise, yeah. consumer technology, certainly VR has a, is already, you know, thinking about gamers, for example, and the, the, the great strides that have been made there. As I think about enterprise technology, it's probably AR for the foreseeable future that's going to be the bigger opportunity. I was visiting with a, uh, an innovative AR company in Los Angeles or, uh, earlier this year, and they were talking about uh, the implementation of their software product um, in a bomb-making facility, like a, like an explosive. I shouldn't say bomb, explosives uh, Ex facility. Yeah. This is, Let's be yeah, correct. Explosives <laughs> used for, for mining, exactly. Used for mining as opposed for war, as opposed to war. And uh, you know, you can understand, like as you're building these sorts of things, one misstep can actually mean fatalities. And so they were using AR in order to ensure that there was a technology um, overlay to the processes that were being implemented and ensuring that every person followed them to the letter and, and ultimately with the first priority being safety. Uh, and they, they, they were reducing fatalities, which, of course, you know, there's no greater value than that human life, uh, but also, uh, you know, improving their processes along the way. And I, that's just one of, I think, a whole range of examples. Uh, I, was, I visited a, 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 a uh, Boeing plant earlier this year as well, where they were showing how mechanics can begin to, you know, as complex as you can imagine, these fuselages and the, right. you know, the, the, the assembly of these major planes uh, and finding an issue and using AR in order to direct you to the right spot and to kind of, you know, be able to uh, have that technology overlay, as I say, in order to, 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 to do your job better and to ensure that you're following the set process appropriately. So I, I think that there's a lot of, of uh, growth yet for AR as well within the enterprise. You brought up something when we were talking about artificial intelligence that I hadn't thought about before. So these companies want to make this transformation into this technology or adapt it to their business. But when it's newer, it's like it's less commoditized. 
like you don't have 10,000 AI developers sitting around waiting to be scooped up like we would now with a lot of the web technologies. We've got a lot of, I mean, I know they say the talent for war and it's, we know that there's more open jobs than, you know, people, but there's, when there's less people in the entire ecosystem like AI, it becomes even harder to apply it to your business, even if you have the dollars, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly right. And so really, you do need to think about this very creatively. You know, I, I often talk about as we're working with technology leaders about the need to, I've already used the word already, but the, the need to build these ecosystems. It's important first and foremost for you to surround yourself with a great team. That's, that, that's the first and most essential ecosystem that you'll develop. But it also means, secondly, the second concentric ring is your peer group. So who are people who are you know, have experiences comparable to yours, have, have organizations that are structured somewhat similar, similarly. Maybe it's not your direct competition, there may be some challenges to collaborating effectively with them, but who are, who are companies that have some, enough similarities that if you talk uh, through your opportunities and your, your issues, that they might rhyme together such that you'll have a productive conversation. But then I think, you know, as you think about the concentric circles around that, it needs to also include the venture capital community to understand where uh, smart money is being spent and why and, and what startups to be cognizant of uh, and begin to partner with potentially. It also, as I mentioned, needs to include, um, you know, consulting firms and talent agencies and others who might be able to readily provide you with um, contract help where perhaps you have a paucity of internal resources to do, to do the things that are, you know, if, for example, if it's AI, that, that to help drive you towards the goals that you have in that, in that capacity. So I'm, cu I'm curious to know about your company because you've been around for 20 years, right? And you advise and work with companies on their strategy and, and adjusting as the market and technologies adjust. But how has technology you know, changed your game over the past 20 years? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a great question. So we, we I think as I think about the recent uses of this and some of the things that I'm most excited about, um, I, I think about learning agility. One of the things that has really been an extraordinary re revolution um, has been the great amount of content that's being developed from tra a training or, a or an education perspective. And we as advisors to the technology community, <clears throat> I mean, I think you can, th this applies to almost anyone. I can't even think of a field where it doesn't apply. It's important for us to be lifelong learners. I think all too often people rest on the laurels of the degree they got, and that could be 15, 20, 25 years ago. Um, how many of us actually, you know, the, the, the thing we studied in as an undergrad is, is that central to what we're doing now, especially if it's technology, maybe relevant, in fact. Um, and so it's so important for us to continue to learn and to continue to develop the skills of tomorrow as opposed to uh, continuing to use the skills of today and yesterday. And so I think one of the things that I think has been really exciting for us uh, as a firm has been to develop kind of the, the various topics that we wish to become expert in and as we advise uh, uh, people on those very same topics and then develop the curricula in order to seize those opportunities, to, to, to become smart in those areas that are rising in importance for us. Um, and, and I think, you know, all organizations now have uh, the opportunity to do this and actually importantly have the opportunity to do this relatively cheaply as well, given the number of tools, the number of ed tech companies that provide great content um, yeah, <laughs> that is that's leveraged out there, right? Yeah, exactly. You you know this quite well. You're you're one of the people who's facilitating this, and so um, so I think this this becomes I think a really important ingredient uh, for the future, and one of the things that we're really investing in as a firm as well. 
you know, when I was doing research for the leader bits business that we're doing, I found that a lot of the bigger companies that are older that have been producing content for a long time, their cost structures are like out of control because they came about like during the revolution to video. And so they have all these very expensive people on these very old methods. And then they created these long processes to produce this content. And when I looked at their cost to produce an hour of content, I was like, are you kidding me? Like five hours of content, I can run my business for a month. Like this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that gave us a real, a real edge when entering the market as far as our you know margins and everything go because we're producing this value that our competitors you know it costs them way more to produce the same amount of value but we can move faster and i don't know it was it was very exciting for for me to see that opportunity i was like this is how now i know how some of these early businesses felt when they came up against the old guard it's like whoa we could we can really <laughs> really make some some improvements here yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think, you know, one of the lessons from that, I think, is sometimes constraint can be your friend, right? I, I think a lot of large organizations, they develop, they're incredibly successful, they grow, uh, their budgets grow along with them. And the assumptions for how they spend, where they spend, um, and how much they spend, uh, it's always sort of a relative to what we did yes last year. So we spent this much, let's add 5% or 3% or, or you know, and, and make that the budget for this year. And it's interesting. I was visiting a uh, startup a couple months ago with a bunch of uh, Fortune 500 CIOs. And this was an organization of about 15. They had a just a, a, a great group of uh, a list of, of clients they'd already put together. They were doing extraordinarily innovative things. Uh, and one of the CIOs of uh, one of these Fortune 500 CIOs, you know, at the conclusion of the meeting said, gosh, I need to bring my team here and show them what 15 people can do. Because there's not a project that's proposed uh, in our company where people are not asking for an additional 50 people um, or, or at least some, some sort of multiplier above what we already have. Because there's the assumption that, look, we can't do this with what we have right now. And this, I think, is in some ways the, the beauty the, the startup or the small firm is in fact that nimbleness that that um, executives at larger companies need to find ways to capture some of that same magic um, and not just be sort of beholden to the past uh, assumptions in terms of how you spend, where you spend, and how much you spend. I wanted to talk a little bit about leadership because, uh, well, and I want you to tell uh, tell about the podcast first. So go ahead. Could you, could you tell everybody what the podcast is that you have? Because I love well, it. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that, that, that Joel. Um, so the podcast is called Technovation, Technovation with Peter High. And uh, we've been around for 10 and a half years. We were very early in this game. I'm very proud to say uh, we're going to have our 400th uh, podcast in a few weeks. Uh, it will be with Michael Lewis, the author. And it has been just a great opportunity to uh, ensure that I'm in regular conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape in a variety of different ways. You know, Joel, like you, um, I, I don't have a boss. I've not had a boss since I was 27. And I need to seek mentors in creative places. Um, and this, this is, I, I certainly won't say this is the reason I got into this, but one of the great things about being in conversation with smart people on a regular basis is understanding what good looks like and how that changes. Um, understanding you has deep insights. You know, I've heard that topic before. I've never heard it put that way. Um, and to continue to sort of sharpen the knives uh, by, by understanding 
what new innovative practices are emerging or what new areas of curiosity uh, great leaders are beginning to contemplate. And so the real gift uh, of the podcast has been these many technology leaders, CEOs of big companies, uh, CEOs of startups, venture capitalists, authors, academics, and understanding um, you know, how the tech landscape is evolving as a result of this. Uh, and so it's been a, it's just a wonderful, like this one, a, a great you know, sort of long-form uh, conversation where we really can kind of peel back the onion several layers and get to not only the interesting practices and insights of each individual, also, you know, how did they do that? What, what, what were they, what was the inspiration to the idea that they were pursuing? Um, you know, how are they engaging their and exciting their teams to do difficult work? Um, so it's really been a, a wonderful gift uh, that, that keeps on giving as, as, as it were. So have you noticed some common like traits or trends between these great people as, as you've talked with them over the years? Are there some things that stand out? Like what stands out? Yeah, so I, I think part of it, um, uh, to, to, to reiterate a point we've already raised, but in a new way, I think part of it is uh, a, a insatiable curiosity. I think there are, you know, uh, what, what did I, I once heard that your, your favorite music is the music that uh, from the period you were in college. Somehow your mind <laughs> kind of like goes back to, you know, that was just such a fun time. And these were the, these, this was the soundtrack of my life during that really fun time. And I think professionally, sometimes there's like a period of creativity and, and then perhaps that passes and that's, you sort of become set in your ways. You know, you calcify a little bit around the things that you do well. And, and it's quite easy for not to push yourself then to get past that, or frankly, to cannibalize the great idea you came up with 10 or 15 years ago. And I think the great leaders are the ones who are constantly pushing. I'll give you a quick story if I can. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Joel, uh, one of the great technology practitioners uh, in the country is the CIO of FedEx, a guy named Rob Carter. And, you know, FedEx is one of these extraordinary stories. Um, Fred Smith, the founder who is still there in his mid-70s, still is the CEO of the company. Um, he, I had a chance to spend a little time with him a few years ago. And he told the story of its founding. And I, I always was curious. There's this famous uh, story of uh, the idea of FedEx first being formulated in an economics class that he took at Yale, and where, where they were, the, the, class, the, the uh, students were asked to develop an idea for a business. And he developed a rudimentary version of FedEx. And, and I believe he got a C on the paper. Um, and, and uh, you know, as, as he tells the story, he, he doesn't really sweat the hit to his GPA these days. Uh, but uh, anyway, he... He, from the very founding, this is in the 1960s that he was in college. He founded the, the, the firm in the early 1970s. And from the get-go, the whole idea behind it was the tech new, technology was on the ascent. And he would ride that um, in terms of its ability to help with logistics, uh, help his whole, his whole dictum that uh, the information about the package is more important than the package itself. And from the get-go, he's had a series of extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, strong chief information officers who've always reported directly to him. Some have gone on to become CEOs of other businesses, in fact. Anyway, back to Rob Carter. Rob has been enrolled for, I think it's a decade and a half now. And he, it dawned on him, this is maybe seven years ago, that the very source of the company's success would be the source of its downfall if they didn't modernize. So technology was really kind of the core, the crown jewel uh, or jewels, as the case may be, within the organization. But because they were not modernizing, because they were continuing to build on older technology, eventually it would become untenable. 
And what an extraordinary insight. The very things that he was responsible for that were, one could argue, some of the greatest things that the company brought to bear, the, the, the value it was creating, the reason why it had such an enor- extraordinary track record in beating the market stock, stock performance-wise. Uh, and he realized, wait a second, uh, that, those things that I, that I should be so proud of, um, I won't be uh, if we don't make some changes. And so he, through Fred, through the board, justified this modernization of the, of the technology uh, becoming more cloud-centric, developing standards to a greater ex- extent, uh, developing the whole idea of microservices that are more interchangeable and more secure in the process as well, um, you know, and, and more fully modernizing what the, the practices, both, you know, the combination of people practices, processes, as well as the technology itself, and has, it, uh, has derived extraordinary value in that journey, that multi-year journey that, that continues now, since I say seven or maybe even eight years now through that process. I shared a stage with him about a month ago uh, where I, I, I gave him a, um, I, uh, we have a, an award as part of the Forbes CIO Summit series, which I executive produce, and talked a bit about that journey uh, and the, how he has, the, the, the activities, and sometimes in some cases very hard work that he and his team have done, have laid the path for them to now innovate at a, at a pace that would not have been possible had they not gone through that journey. And I think that that's really, a, you know, where technology leaders need to focus their attention. It's actually the topic of my next book, in fact. Ooh, oh, you got ne- what's the next book? What's the, so the next title yet? It, yeah, it's called Getting to Nimble. And the whole idea is that, uh, you know, especially digital immigrant organizations, if you will, those for the Netscape uh, IPO, for instance, those that are a generation or more old, they need to modernize people practices, processes, and technologies to, uh, in order to ensure that you are not stuck in the past, that you're not building on a castle, you know, made, in, made on the sand, um, uh, so that you, you are, in fact, developing something that's going to be more sustainable. You can't fully future-proof your organization, but you should strive to do the sorts of things that at least be in that direction. I really like the title because it's like not agile, but, but it's, it's got that like, it's, it's a, such a cool creative way to, to say, you know, talk about flexibility, right? Getting nimble. I like that. Thank you. I um, appreciate that. You're no stranger to writing. You've written several books. The next book, by the way, do we have a release date? Do we know when it's going to be out? Uh, it'll probably be 2020. We don't have a specific date yet. Yeah, still, you know, uh, yeah, sometime in 2020, probably in the first half, okay. I hope anyway. Okay, first, we'll say first. If, my, if my editor is listening, uh, like, I never said. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll not we'll do that. But you, you write a lot. Like, this is not, you've written several books, right? You've got this new one coming out. You've also written extensively for Forbes and all sorts of other publications. What have, what have you learned about writing in your career? Obviously, what, what I've learned is that it's very important as far as, like, even if I didn't put the writings out, the act of having to articulate my ideas and get them out smoothly has been tremendously helpful to me. I did it, of course, like trying to write my first book, learning how to do that. But for you, how, how has it helped shape your career? What have you learned from writing? It's really been essential. I, I mentioned that, that first firm that I joined out of undergrad. And one of the really extraordinary things about that firm was every, I, I, almost every uh, senior leader of, the, of that organization was a combination PhD and MBA. Extraordinary. I don't have either of those, by the way, so I didn't follow in that <laughs> path. But one of, the, one of the things that was really, uh, that made an enormous impression on me was the sanctity of writing. Any, anyone who has a PhD 
Um, obviously, he's going to do a tremendous amount of writing your thesis, the whole notion, especially if you ever were contemplating an academic path, the whole publish or perish um, mantra. And what I saw was tremendous advantage derived by, by writing, especially in book form. And so it was a goal of mine from very early in my career. And the idea really is um, it, not unlike the, the insights that I shared from the podcast, which I know I'm, I'm sure you share, Joel, as well, is you know, it, it gives you reason from time to time to step back from your day to day, contemplate what have I learned? What, what, what have I learned that has a broader shelf life here? What have I learned that, um, that I think really applies across companies, across industries, across geographies? Is there a methodology that I might share here so that there are kind of steps that others might follow in order to emulate the practices of the best practitioners? Um, and you're right. I think the act of writing itself is is itself. I mean, it's, it's in some ways the fundamental intellectual exercise. Stopping, contemplating, putting, you know, either a pen on paper or fingers on keyboard and developing the stories um, that that will hopefully compel others to change in a positive way. And, you know, for me, as I know for you as well, Joel, um, my first book was really a sea change for me. I, it was we, we had a a very nice practice. Our firm was founded in 01. My first book came out at the end of 09. Uh, you know, we were growing nicely. Um, and I, I, I was fortunate that it was a book that was well received. And, you know, in the, the year following it, it's coming out, 40% of our revenue somehow tracked back to the book itself. So uh, what I like to say about books, if you, you know, if you do your job right, you work very hard on them, you publish it, and then it goes to work for you. Um, and I think that that is I, 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 I can't underscore enough the importance of that. If, if you are somebody who wants to get your ideas out into the world and, and ultimately develop a bit of a pipeline that comes to you. You said it perfectly. I don't even have anything to add. <laughs> I will share a small story. Though. Please. So I did you. the first book. I had no idea. Like, I just knew I had these like ideas that were like and I just had to get them out there. So I did the best I could. And then I got, of course, feedback. So I learned how people, what they expect from a book. Um, so that there was different types of people and they expect different things from it. So then now that I'm starting the second book, um, I understand how to like satisfy both halves of the equation. But one thing that I, that, I, that I learned from web design for so many years and app design that I have applied to the book and feel free to play with this, but I wrote like all the sales copy prior to writing the outline for the second book. Ah, so like all the things I would want someone to say, like a critic to say, uh, like I wrote the reviews of like what they would say about the book. <laughs> and then from that, I worked backwards to determine the chapters because we you only ever like take away two or three big ideas from a book, right? Because of just the way our memory works. So I said, all right, let's figure out like what's the nicest, coolest things people could say about the book. And then let's work backwards from that. Whereas my first book, I was like, here's all the ideas I want to get out and let's push them all out. And so I don't know how it's going to come out because it's not out yet. <laughs> but so this is uh, like in the middle part that we're, that we're at right now. So this is going to either be awesome or horrible, but I will, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Please do. I'll look forward to that. I'll look forward to, to hearing how that, how that turns out for you. It worked well for the, for the products because what would happen is I would – Early on in my, my career of making technology, I would build with like all this cool stuff and then I'd try to go figure out how to market it and like write a sales page and come up with what features are we going to advertise on the website. And then I realized 
that was kind of backwards. It's like really hard. Then you found out you got to make new features or you got to simplify them so that you have something that's more sellable. And then of course, you know, that was like 15 years ago. Now everybody knows you talk to the customer first and then work backwards from that, but it wasn't so obvious yeah, 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 then. Exactly. <laughs> so it was actually all the pain from then that allowed uh, now to be more simple. But uh, yeah, that's, I just applied cross, cross domain logic and I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. When's the next time you're, you're speaking? I know you do a lot of speaking. Is it in Texas? You said in a couple, couple months you have an event. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I probably speak maybe three or three ish times a month on average, something along those lines, two or three, let's say, uh, it kind of comes in waves. Um, I also produce a few conferences. I mentioned, um, I've been producing four CIO summit series since 2014. And so we do multiple events of those. And so I have more of a hand in the shaping of the agenda and determining who's on stage and, you know, all those sorts of things. And we have a, a conference of our own that's coming out, uh, next uh, next month as i say as well so we'll you know th those are those are especially fun because it gives us a chance to again take what we've learned and what i what i like to think of, the way i like to think about it joel is if my writing i do about 100 columns in forbes a year and if that's kind of like the the album then the greatest hits go on stage uh it's another reason why the volume of conversation is very uh, fortuitous is it allows for you know again understanding who is it not only has a great story to tell but who also tells that story very well uh and it's uh, you know sort of continuing to have that ear for that and then you know finding the the, the venues for those people to be on stage is a really it's really satisfying oh nice well when i come across some like i've got a, a library we keep spreadsheets of like all of our guests and then i yeah I, we make notes about them so i'll gladly share that if you want access to any of our people we've got like i've had some people on that are just exceptional storytellers but also extremely bright technically that? yeah they're they're also the ones that are most busy <laughs> yeah of course of course <laughs> so as we start to wrap up here i'm curious if you could go back all the way back to when you're in, in uh, college learning history if you give yourself a piece of advice right that would just one piece of advice that would last your your entire career what would what would that be what would that look like yeah, that's, I think it's a great, um, it's a great question. And there are two ways in which I'd like to tackle that, Joel. On the one hand, I'd love to, I'd love to go back to my younger self and, you know, push for and emphasize what I think I've done a decent job at, but, but of, as, as I mentioned before, continuing to learn, continuing to, um, you know, push for new, new areas of knowledge uh, and be that lifelong learner. Um, the other side of the, the other side of that is, you know, I used to say when, when, when asked a question akin to that, Joel, I, I would say, I'd love to go back and tell that, that guy that things are going to end up pretty well. Um, not that I've reached any sort of end or that I should, should uh, consider what success that, that our firm has had to date as something that is going to continue ad infinitum. But I do think, um, so I used to say, I, I would love to go back and, you know, think about all the trials and tribulations of founding a firm and the, you know, trying times of downtimes of the economy and so on, that it, it's going to, end up okay. But on the other hand, I actually, as I, as I think about that more thoroughly, I wouldn't want to mention that to my younger self because it is those trials and tribulations that are so extraordinarily important that, that insecurity that, um, in all forms, you know, personal insecurity, but just even financial insecurity of those early days were really important propellants to, you know, ensure that we, 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 we were bringing our A game, that we were creating new ideas, that we are, we, we were striving to, to do our best work in some cases during the most difficult times. And so 
it's, it's funny. In some ways, I'm not so sure that I would want to go back to him and, and share too much advice because I'd worry that I'd, I'd offer, whisper that in my ear and then find in my, my present self that things aren't quite as rosy as they were because of a false confidence that, that I shouldn't be given. So, uh, so a, a slight nuance in the answer to your question. Dude, I'm getting goosebumps right now because I've had so many people come on and they'd say, oh, they would tell them past, their past selves, like, relax, it'll be okay, you'll make it. And every time I hear that, it scares the life out of me because I feel like if I just ease up, if I don't give every ounce I have, then I won't go as far as I know I could go. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah I, I think it's, it's your, your, your future success is dependent upon, in some ways, that lack of certainty. Right. Anything that's going to, um, you know, quell your ambition is not something you should seek. And so uh, and, and frankly, as I say, that that uncertainty, that insecurity, that those other attributes are, in fact, your friend. If you're an entrepreneur, uh, being able to push through those uh, and and continue to do your best work. I, you know, my first book was written largely in 2008, which was the worst year as for so many services firms, the worst year in our firm's history. Um, so in some ways, one of the things I've always been very proud of is as a firm during difficult times, we, we do, we, as I mentioned before, we strive to do some of our best and most creative work. And we use any downtime that we have from a, from a client work perspective to, as I mentioned before, sit back, reflect, and, do, and, and um, focus on some of those internal uh, activities, intellectual activities, writing activities to ensure that we are uh, you know, investing in the sorts of things that will pay dividends once growth continues uh, again. Right. Isn't that beautiful though, how the, the life naturally works as, as business isn't as uh, intense, you have more time to do things like create more materials that will ultimately make business more intense. That's right. And there's a reason, Joel, I mean, there's, there's so much that's been written, certainly not my insight. It's the, you know, but although it is my experience, so many businesses are founded during downturns. I, I was, ours was founded in 01, as I mentioned earlier, the year of 9-11, the year after the bubble bursting on the first uh, uh, internet uh, revolution. And that was trying times. I, my, my, my income in 01 was a quarter of what it was in 2000. And, um, but in some ways, it was because of that, because work wasn't being poured over me, that I needed to really think creatively about, so how do we go about this? Who do we seek? Where do we focus our attention? How do we develop creative marketing uh, in, in an environment where people are not necessarily, uh, you know, readily handing out dollars for, for advisory work. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of great ideas that sustained us uh, were developed in that. And it, a lot of it was because of that uncertainty of a, of a downturn in the economy. Yeah. And then you realize, you know, well, what's going through my mind right now is if I was in a down market, I would start writing content about like how to stay lean, like make the most of your <laughs> resources, right? Because yeah. that's what people yeah. are looking for. So you got to pay attention to attention. That's exactly right. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. So what, what are you most excited about today? Like, what's, why are you springing out of bed in the morning? What are you looking forward to? You know, one of the things I love is in conversations like this one, Joel, with, with, with people who are really kind of, you know, plugged in and curious and not only, and, you know, certainly this is a great example in your case, who, who are not just great speakers, but great listeners. Um, what, I, what really excites me is our own ecosystem. Forgive me for using that term yet again. We'll make it like a drinking game, uh, how many times I'll say that. But um, uh, what, one of the things that I, I think is so important is, is developing a network of people and finding way, interesting ways to connect them. 
you know, you mentioned such a great idea as you develop these conversations, the database you're keeping as to the insights that people are, are drawing out, perhaps your own evaluation as to who's strong or less strong as the case may be on different topics. Um, you know, I think it's essential to do so. One of the things we, we, we talked about AI earlier, Joel, and I think in services businesses, AI is going to be an enormous threat. There's going to be an awful lot that the, the, the plane on which uh, value is created is getting higher and higher and higher because of the degree to which algorithms can help foster better decision making. It used to be that a person had to manual, manually manipulate vast amounts of data before decisions could be made. And there were people, maybe armies of people, in fact, doing that work. And increasingly, it's going to be the, um, the technology that will do that, needless to say. And that's going to come for services businesses. It already is. But what, what helps, and again, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's no future proofing of any business, but what helps guard against that is developing connections between people, putting yourself at the center of interesting conversations, um, garnering an insight from one person or learning about a new area of curiosity or fear, as the case may be, of, of one individual and saying, you know what? I know somebody who's six months ahead of you in, in, in the journey that you, you're hoping to go through. Let me put you in touch with them and so that you can avoid the pitfalls uh, that they've experienced and seize more rapidly the opportunities that they have garnered in that six-month lead that they have on you. Um, and the more you are creating those connections, the more value you're creating for multiple people, and it shines a halo above you for having done so in the process, while uh, hopefully also contributing to your own edification, your own education uh, as to, as I mentioned earlier, what good looks like and what great practices are and so on. So from my perspective, I'm just, I'm, I'm always excited to meet new people and find ways to think about, you know, how can I add interesting value to this person and put them in, in touch with and connect them with others who are going to be of value to them and vice versa. And I think the more we do those, the more we can really propel uh, organizations and individuals forward in the process. I love it. Learning, being useful, connecting others, relationships. Yeah, that's those are the reasons why I like it. That's why I get out of bed in the morning too. I like that's you a lot. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're kindred spirits. 100%. So I'm guaranteeing you right now, there's people listening and they're pumped up. They like you. They'll have questions for you. How, how, how can they connect with you? What's the best way to reach out? What's your website? What's your Twitter, your LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you asking. So uh, Twitter, I'm at Peter A. Hi. Uh, would love to hear from anyone through that. You can find me at uh, Metis Strategy, M-E-T-I-S Strategy.com. Uh, my, my email address is just peter.hi before that. Uh, would love to hear from anyone who, who would like to hear in greater depth uh, about anything that I've discussed or any questions that this might, uh, might lead to for people. Um, so I really appreciate you asking, Joel. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing the advice. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure, Joel. I really appreciate your interest. I'm a, I'm a fan of the work that you're doing as well. So please keep up the good work. And I hope that we can keep our conversation and dialogue going. Yeah, I'm going to find some excuse to run into one of your conferences so we can say hello. Please do. That'd be wonderful. All right. Talk soon, Peter. All right. Thank you so much, Joel. Be well. See you, bud. Bye.